Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the first day of what traditionally is known as uh, Holy Week. And um, here's a reminder of what Holy Week is supposed to commemorate. It commemorates the, the last week of the Lord Jesus Christ's life on, on the earth. So it begins with Palm Sunday, which commemorates Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem, which we're going to be looking at uh, in, in some detail. He goes back into the temple the next day and cleanses the temple for the second time. He uh, confronts the religious leaders. Um, there's Judas's betrayal, then the Last Supper on Thursday, uh, Peter's denial of Jesus. Jesus is actually arrested. And then the, the crucifixion on Good Friday. But then we know that that's not the end of the story either because then on the third day, uh, the first day of the week, uh, which we now think of as Easter Sunday, but it's every first day of the week that we commemorate the, the Lord's resurrection from the dead. So that is Holy Week. And this is Palm Sunday. And what we're going to be focusing on this morning uh, are not just the details of the events of Palm Sunday, but we're going to be focusing on what Palm Sunday as, as a whole teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. So that, that's the theme of our study today, what Palm Sunday teaches us about Jesus. Um, Brother Ron read uh, Mark's account of Christ's triumphal entry in uh, Mark chapter 11. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry, is mentioned in all four gospel accounts. It's a very important event. So the first thing that we're going to see that Palm Sunday teaches us about Jesus is that he is the Lord. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus that is described to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is none other than the Lord himself. And we see that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Notice verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, and let's just pause there and get uh, our bearings straight. So most of Jesus's earthly ministry took place beyond Jerusalem. This is not the first time he's been in Jerusalem, but most of the three years of his public ministry have been uh, spent out and about. But here he is on his way into Jerusalem. And so Bethany is here. This is roughly two miles. Bethany um, Bethphage, this is the Mount of Olives that it, um, occupies a commanding view of the uh, temple complex, and Jesus is on his way into the temple. And so he, he uh, as they're coming to, to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, that's when Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them in verse 2, go into the village in front of you, that being Bethphage, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Mark just mentions the, the colt. 
untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So what I'm focusing on here is what what Jesus says his disciples to say when they go into Bethphage and get this donkey and its cult. Jesus tells them to say the Lord needs them. So here's Jesus saying about himself, I am the Lord. So Jesus here is identifying himself with the Lord of the Old Testament, particularly the Lord of Psalm 24 and verse 1, where we read, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, including, by the way, this particular donkey and its cult. Jesus is that Lord. Jesus is the divine owner and master of the earth and everything in it, as well as the entire created universe. Jesus is the sovereign ruler over all, who arranges and governs all circumstances, including the existence, location, and availability of this particular donkey and its cult. And the reason that that is so is because of what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. This is a mind-blowing passage. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where we read, For by him, and in the context, Paul's talking about the Son of God, Jesus, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's why Jesus had the right to say, the Lord has need of them, regarding the donkey and its colt. But you can see that Paul's words in Colossians 1 have ramifications far and wide beyond just what was going on on Palm Sunday. These words have ramifications to us here this morning. It means that the boundaries of our habitation have been set by Jesus. It means that we have our life and our breath, and our being in him. It means that every single particle, including the uh, atoms within the molecules in our bodies, are all being held together in and through and by Jesus Christ. He is the universal power that holds all things together. He is the logic. He is the word, the wisdom that that we see in all of the created universe, especially in life and especially in human life. He is the cause. He is the author of the alphabet of our DNA. 
He is the wisdom behind the information system that is in every single cell in our bodies and every single living cell on planet Earth. It is Jesus. And when, when he makes this simple statement, the Lord needs them. He, he opens the door into his ownership, his lordship over the universe, over every living thing, and over us. This is Jesus who triumphantly enters Jerusalem on that day. He is a very majestic and glorious being. So he is the Lord. Secondly, Palm Sunday teaches us that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies. Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies. This is what Matthew emphasizes in verses 4 and following. This took place for a reason, for a purpose. This took place in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and now he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. There's also uh, an echo of Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 11. Verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. We're going to look at those passages a little bit later. Um, but for now, this is a great reminder that to the gospel writer Matthew, and in fact to all of the gospel writers, but particularly to Matthew, it's very important to Matthew to tell the story of the birth, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus in a way that it's clear that everything about Jesus happened in order to fulfill what the Old Testament scriptures foretold. In fact, in G uh, Matthew's gospel, he quotes Old Testament prophecies more than 60 times, 6-0. And at least 14 times, he explicitly states that certain events happened, like this event, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's just Matthew's gospel. Then when you expand the scope uh, to the whole New Testament, uh, and, and particularly to the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 351 Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. 351. I, I've got them. I'll give you a copy. It's, it's remarkable to see that. And here are some highlights. Here's the big picture when you think of these 351 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. The, the big picture is the eternal Son of God would be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. His outward appearance would not attract anyone's attention, just as we see here, by the way, in his uh, triumphal entry. He didn't look like a king. There was nothing impressive about his outward appearance. 
His ministry would be marked by miracles like healing the lame, unstopping deaf ears, and giving sight to the blind. He would be a light to the Gentiles, but his own people would reject him. One of his closest friends, Judas, would betray him. He would face death like a lamb silently meets its demise. He would die in such a way that he would be hung on a tree. His hands, his feet, and his side would be pierced through. His death would be, a sin, would be as a sin-bearing substitute. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, uh, Isaiah wrote. And he was stricken for the transgression of God's people. That's why he would cry out in abandonment as Psalm 22 foretold, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would die alongside the wicked and be buried with a rich man, but he wouldn't stay dead. As God's anointed one, he would not see corruption, as Psalm 16 says. He shall see his, spring, uh, his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Because of him, through, throughout the ages, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Ultimately, Jesus will come again as God's appointed ruler on the new earth, where peace will reign, death will be no more, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the big picture. But then there's a whole bunch of details that are included, but that is the composite picture. And the, the takeaway, what impresses me over and over and over again as I consider that, as I read the Old Testament, as I read the New Testament, what impresses me is that the Christian faith stands on a very strong foundation. Jesus doesn't just come out of nowhere. He's, he's utterly unique. He's not like the various cult and religious leaders throughout history who, who, who just pop up and they uh, build a following and they just say, trust me. Jesus does say, trust me. But he says that he has come in fulfillment of all of the promises, all of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. So much so that uh, someone who is a sworn enemy of Jesus, Saul of Tarsus, his heart was open. It was changed by the power of Jesus and his eyes were opened. And then Saul of Tarsus saw that indeed the message of the gospel, all that Jesus is about, it's none other than what the law and the Psalms and the prophets had said. And so when, when the Apostle Paul began life as Saul of Tarsus, when he went on his missionary journeys and turned the world upside down, his textbook was the Old Testament. So it, it never ceases to amaze me um, how Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament anticipates. Uh, he fulfills Old Testament prophecies like the prophecies of Zechariah uh, chapter 9 and verse 9 and Isaiah 62 and verse 11. But that's not the only thing about Jesus 
that we learn. We also learn that he's the humble king. He's the humble king. Notice again, verse 5, this citation from the Old Testament. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. But then the next statement is surprising. Doesn't seem to go along with the first statement that your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you, but he's not going to look like an earthly king. He's not going to fit the part as far as the expectations of fallen human beings. Because he's coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus will come to execute judgment riding on a white horse. It's a glorious scene that John depicts for us prophetically. But on the first Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem not on the back of a white horse, but on the back of a donkey's colt. And that's a symbol of humility, meekness, and peace. And this is consistent with how Jesus described himself. In fact, uh, we're here in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Stick a marker there like I'm doing and look back in Matthew chapter 11. This is a glorious statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 11. It's a familiar passage. He says in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, Jesus is utterly unique. Utterly unique compared to all of the other kings that the world has ever known. Sometimes kings are benevolent rulers. But even the best, uh, most humble and benevolent human rulers, they have pride in their hearts. They have sinfulness in their hearts. And there's always something about their rule that is inconsistent, selfish, self-serving, and harsh. But not so with King Jesus. Jesus is the picture, the embodiment, the fulfillment of all gentleness and all lowliness. He's not a harsh dictator. He's not come to exchange one set of legalistic requirements for another. He's not just a substitute for the Pharisees. He has come to bring an entirely different yoke. A yoke that is just manifestly righteous and right and good. 
a yoke that goes along with his gentleness and his glory and his righteousness. And it goes along with the new heart that Jesus gives to his followers. And it just flows with our love for Jesus, this yoke. It's an easy yoke and his burden is light. It's not because it's invisible. It's not because there isn't actually a yoke. But it's because it just makes so much sense and it just flows from the love that Jesus has for his people and that his people have for him. So this is how Jesus described himself as this gentle and humble king. But it's also consistent with Christ's mission. So look forward in Matthew's gospel to chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. In fact, if you back up to verse 25, Jesus said to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They tend to be authoritarian. They tend to be heavy-handed. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 26 It shall not be so among you. So authoritarianism, heavy-handedness, is contradictory to Christian leadership. He goes on, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And now Jesus uses himself himself as the greatest example in verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to ultimately give his life as a ransom for many. This was Jesus's mission. His mission was not to re-enter Jerusalem and to conquer all of his enemies, to prove all of his adversaries wrong, and to sit on David's throne and rule as David's uh, greater son from Jerusalem forevermore. That was not Christ's mission. His mission was to redeem. His mission was to save. His mission was to ransom And so he had to first give his life as a ransom for many. And his triumphal uh, entry into Jerusalem is a part of that. It's a link in that chain. And then also Christ's humility controls his followers. We've seen that Christ's humility was how he described himself. It's, It's consistent with Christ's mission. But in Philippians chapter 2, Christ's humility controls his followers. Philippians 2 verses 3 through 5, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And do do you hear how against our nature that is? Everything within us Everything from our environment, our society, and our 
our culture, says to us that we are numero uno. We are number one in our world. But the gospel teaches us, and the example of Christ teaches us, that we are to count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. One of the things that Jesus does as he saves a sinner is that he transforms our worldview, removes us from the center of our world, and put and replaces us with himself and others. This is what Jesus does in his reclamation project that we call salvation. And we see that on display in Christ's triumphal entry. He is the humble king. Then, fourthly, the fourth lesson that Palm Sunday teaches us about Jesus is that he's the promised son of David. He's the promised son of David. So back to Matthew chapter 21. Notice verses 6 and 7. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And Matthew is not saying here that Jesus sat on both the donkey and its uh, colt. He's saying that Jesus sat on their cloaks, which were uh, put on the, the donkey and its colt. And by the way, he uh, rode the colt, and the, um, its mother must have been nearby. Then in verse 8, we read, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Uh, John's the one who tells us that these branches were branches of palm trees. So this is why uh, this particular event is celebrated by Palm Sunday. Then in verse 9, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna is actually a transliteration of a, a Hebrew word that's just carried over into the Greek and then over into the English. It's a Hebrew expression meaning, save us, Lord. And uh, we, we can read it used in that context in Psalm 118 and verse 25. That's what the, the people of Israel had been trained to say when the Messiah would come, Hosanna, save us, Lord. And so that's what they were saying here. There are messianic overtones. The uh, theme of the coming of the Messiah is uh, just drenched in this particular event. And you'll notice the crowd says, Hosanna to the Son of David. The Son of David. 
This is another really important theme to Matthew. Do you know that Matthew's first sentence in his gospel says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew 1.1. That's what Matthew is going to set out to show. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope and prophecies. And that as the fulfillment of Israel's hope, Jesus is also the son of David. Six times Matthew records people calling Jesus son of David like this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which we're told is the, the city of David. And why is this so important? Why is this such a crucial theme in the history of redemption? Well, let's look together in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And let's look at verses 12 and 13. This passage records for us God's covenant with David, the famous Davidic covenant. God promises David, when your days are fulfilled, verse 12, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And you might think to yourself, well, maybe David's immediate biological sons like Solomon, would fulfill this promise. And it's, it's true that David's sons, like Solomon, uh, did fulfill this promise to a point. But no merely human, earthly son of David could fulfill all of the Davidic covenant. Because notice what comes next in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promises David that there's going to come a descendant from David's loins, if you will, who is going to establish his kingdom, and he's going to sit on his throne uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon didn't do that. None of the kings of Israel, none of the kings of Judah, none of the merely earthly, none of the merely human descendants of David ever did that. They all died. All of their kingdoms came to an end. And even today, even though, even though there's a political entity known as Israel in the, in the Middle East, that is a far cry from the Davidic covenant. That is not a kingdom. And an offspring of David is not on the throne, certainly not a single individual who has been reigning since the Old Testament and will continue to reign. Jesus Christ 
Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the one who uh, triumphantly entered Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, the one about whom and to whom the crowd was saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. That Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the promised son of David, whose kingdom will last forever. His kingdom, Jesus said, is not of this world. It's a spiritual, not a political, military, or economic kingdom. Jesus rules in the hearts and lives of believers through the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is coming again on the last day, the day that the New Testament calls the day of the Lord. And when Jesus comes again, he will rule and reign with his followers on earth in the new Jerusalem forever. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is the promised son of David. And then sixthly and lastly, the last lesson that we'll see that Palm Sunday teaches us about Jesus is that, let's see, oh, I'm not there yet. I'm skipping this. Oh, got it. (laughs) We're not to number six yet. Number five, he's the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate prophet. So we've seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, including the prophecies concerning David and his son, but he himself is the ultimate prophet. So back in Matthew chapter 21, notice verses 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And it's not that they were ignorant about Jesus. Uh, He was famous throughout the land of Palestine. His reputation had spread. It's not that they were completely ignorant, but they're scratching their heads and trying to figure out, who is this guy? Who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And when the crowds said that, I'm not sure that they knew the full significance of what they had said, but they were scratching the surface of a very important reality about Jesus. He is the prophet. Moses, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 5 said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the the Mosaic law had anticipated another prophet like Moses. And then think about how Jesus fulfills this particular prophecy by being like Moses, but then beyond Moses. So I want to show you some really important passages 
that I think are familiar to you, but we can never be too familiar with them. John chapter 1 and verse 1. Think of how Jesus is the ultimate prophet. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember, the prophets spoke in God's place. The prophets spoke the Word of God. Jesus did too. But the Bible says that Jesus is a prophet not just in that he spoke the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. He is the Logos himself. And notice how John develops this in verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Remember how Moses uh, directed the people to the glory of God, and Moses himself was exposed to the glory of God, but he had to be hidden from the full manifestation of the glory of God? Well, here's another way in which Jesus far transcends the office of Moses as a prophet, Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus manifests the glory of God himself. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he goes on to say that John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And then the apostle John continues, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That could never have been said about Moses or any of the other prophets in the Old Testament. We don't receive anything from the prophets except the word of God, which has been inscripturated for us. But from this one, Jesus, the prophet, the ultimate prophet, from Jesus, we receive from his fullness and grace upon grace. And how does Jesus compare to Moses? For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's not that there wasn't grace and truth under Moses. There certainly were. But that grace and truth were just types and shadows compared to the stunning, blazing light that came through Jesus. The grace and truth that came through Moses were just a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of the grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ. And then here's the grand finale in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, including Moses, including all of the prophets. But the only Son, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the only Son who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. 
He has not only seen God, he is with God and he is God in verse 1. And then he doesn't keep that knowledge to himself. Jesus himself makes God known. So again, you think of the role of the prophets. What was the role of the prophets? Ultimately, to make God known through God's word. How did, what's the role of Jesus as the prophet, the ultimate prophet? To make God known through himself. Through himself. That's why Jesus would say to, to Philip, you, you want to see God? Well, I'm telling you, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then finally, another well-known but super important passage, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The writer of the book of Hebrews ties all of this together, this picture of what the Old Testament was prefiguring and foreshadowing and how Jesus is the culmination and the grand finale and everything that uh, the whole of the scriptures have ever been about. In Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, step by step, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, yes, we are in the last days, but not just because we're in 2021, but because Jesus has come into the world. And as soon as Jesus came into the world, that set the clock of the last days running. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And here is why Jesus is uniquely, eminently qualified to be the word of God, to be the one by whom God speaks. Because in verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God. Jesus is how we see the glory of God. The Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. That's because Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Whatever God is, Jesus is. And not only that, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, like we saw in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is not gone. <laughs> Jesus is alive. He's been raised from the dead. And he's now seated on his throne in heaven, waiting to come again. And there in, on his throne of glory, he's busy. 
He's growing his church. He's expanding his kingdom. He is saving sinners. And he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. He is the ultimate prophet. So you see what I mean when I say that when this crowd on the first Palm Sunday said, here, here is this Jesus. He is the prophet. This is the prophet Jesus. They were right. They were onto something. But I doubt they knew the full importance and glory of what it is that they were saying. The rest of the New Testament tells us he's the ultimate prophet. Now we come to number six. The last lesson here that G, uh, Palm Sunday teaches us about Jesus, and that is that he saves his people from their sins. He saves his people from their sins. Where do I get that from? How does Palm Sunday teach, teach us that Jesus saves his people from their sins? Well, I said that we were going to come back to Zechariah 9.9 and Isaiah 62.11. This is the time. So, Zechariah 9.9 that Matthew cites in verse 5 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Listen to this. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice how Zechariah describes this coming king. He's righteous and having salvation is he. And then Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 11, listen to this. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. So this, this coming king has salvation and this coming king himself is our salvation. So what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, way back in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, the angel told Joseph, the earthly adopted father of Jesus, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And how would Jesus do that? What does the triumphal entry into Jerusalem have to do with all of that? Well, we're in Matthew 21. Look back in the previous chapter. Chapter 20 and verse, verses 17 through 19. Matthew 20, 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, 
to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And so we should not think to ourselves that when Jesus first went into uh, Jerusalem in the verses that we're looking at, everything was positive and this was his original plan and somehow his plan went awry because his people rejected him instead of receiving him as their Messiah and he ended up being crucified instead of enthroned. Shouldn't think that. Because here we have Jesus' words before the fact that it was Jesus' purpose from the very beginning. In fact, it was God's purpose for Jesus in sending Jesus into the world in the first place to do this very thing, to be delivered over to the Gentiles, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But not only that, to continue Jesus' prophecy, and he will be raised on the third day. This is why Jesus came into the world. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus has done in order to save his people from their sins. And so you think about this beautiful picture that the Old Testament paints for us of this prophet, priest, and king. We've seen Jesus as the prophet, the ultimate prophet. We've seen Jesus as the the promised humble king, the promised son of David. But think of Jesus as the priest. In the Old Testament, there was priest after priest after priest whose job it was basically to put animals to death and to shed their blood. Millions and millions of animals killed, I think, Millions and millions of gallons of blood shed. The writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says, but those priests had to keep on offering those same sacrifices over and over again throughout the history of Israel because those sacrifices could never take away sin. But this man, Jesus Not only the prophet, not only the great king, not only great David's greater son, but our great high priest. This man, Jesus, laid down his life for one sacrifice for sin once and for all, putting it all to an end, satisfying the righteous requirements of the law forever propitiating, satisfying, quenching the screams of God's holiness and justice against our sin forever. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He didn't die on the cross as a failed Messiah. He died on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died on the cross as the successful great high priest. And then God raised Jesus from the dead on that first Easter Sunday 
to show that Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions, but he was raised again for our justification. And now this great high priest continues. We've spoken about how Jesus is on his throne in heaven. Well, he's still prophet, priest, and king. And as our great high priest in heaven, Jesus always intercedes for his people. And we as his people enjoy the benefits of being cleansed by his blood forever and ever and ever. It's not that he's always shedding his blood, but his blood, which has been once for all shed for sin, has eternal benefits for those who believe. And so what a great picture of what Jesus is all about. What a great picture of our great God and King, our prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, what a great day to come to him. Honor Jesus on the day that we honor his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Honor him by turning from your sins, trusting in him as your Lord and Savior and your only hope for heaven and the way, the truth, and, your, and life for your life now. Come to Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible event that took place as the scriptures said that it would take place, as your providence caused to take place. Thank you that Jesus did all that was laid out for him, all that was predetermined for him. He suffered and died. He was humiliated. And then he was raised again so that sinners like us might be saved. Would you help us to honor Jesus as our great prophet, priest, and king? And I do pray that uh, you would draw lost sinners to yourself today. Do what you're in the business of doing, Lord. Take your word. Apply it deep within hearts and minds and consciences and draw sinners to Jesus Christ even now. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.